From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Hundreds of activists and scholars meeting at the National Press Club say that more people around the globe are demanding justice for Palestine. The way that Israel exists in the world is ultimately antithetical to life and to liberty, not just for Palestinians, but for all people who struggle against tyranny, oppression, white supremacy, and ecological destruction. We hear a key address by Professor Walter Hickson, author of the forthcoming book, Israel's Armor, the role of the Israel lobby in the history of the Palestine conflict. Before most Americans even knew that it existed, the lobby had played a pivotal role in enabling Israel to launch an aggressive war, to choose land over peace with the Palestinians and its other Arab neighbors, and to continue to thumb its nose at the UN and international law. All that and much more coming up. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, the eagerly anticipated conclusion of the Mueller report hit inside the Beltway politics like a bomb this week. And as summarized by Attorney General Bill Barr, Mueller's 22-month-long investigation concludes that there was no collusion between the Trump presidential campaign and the Russian government. And with me today to discuss this and other national and international news is On the Grounds contributor Professor Gerald Horn, author of more than three dozen books, including The Color of Fascism, Lawrence Dennis, Racial Passing, and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism in the United States. And so, Gerald, I'm sure a thorough researcher like yourself is still looking to see the full report. But what is your reaction to the summaries as reported so far? Well, as you know, Attorney General William Barr has placed himself between the report and consumers of the report, such as myself. His summary in a four-page letter is that there was no collusion between the Trump team and Moscow and that there is not a sufficient case to proceed on obstruction of justice. What I find striking is the reaction of many critics of the entire Russiagate scandal, including Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone, Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, and Aaron Mate in The Nation, who have characterized this whole so-called scandal as a spectacular fail by liberals fueled by MSNBC and CNN. That is to say that Many liberals, it seems to me at least, after November 2016, were seeking a reason for how a con man and a racist got 63 million votes. And rather than an agonizing reappraisal of the basics of U.S. history, including trying to understand how and why it is that for decades now, nine out of 10 Euro-Americans in Dixie across class lines have voted for the right wing. They pointed the finger of accusation at Moscow. Not only that, but during the Cold War, liberals were battered by a charge that they were much too close to Moscow. And they felt that if they could convince these 63 million voters that Mr. Trump was actually the person in bed with Moscow, that many of these uh, 63 million would be won over to the Democratic Party side of the ledger. But what they apparently fail to realize is that there's no necessary ideological consistency amongst the 63 million who vote for the white right. 
they, after all, adjusted their moral compass to swallow a profane, obscene, cruel billionaire, and basically illustrated the common wisdom of the late comic Groucho Marx, who once said that if you don't like these principles, well, I have other principles you may like. And liberals obviously put too much faith in Robert Mueller, a Republican, who, by the way, was flayed repeatedly by the 45th president for allegedly asking Mr. Trump for a job before the investigation began. Uh, Liberals obviously put too much faith in spies like Jim Clapper, now a commentator on CNN, and John Brennan, now a commentator on MSNBC. And if you're in bed with the CIA, you should ask yourself what you're doing there with that particular bedmate. And that process really never took place. Uh, Liberals were obviously seeking a magic bullet to get rid of Donald J. Trump, which was an implicit recognition of something that they rarely explicitly acknowledged, which is that they felt, apparently, that they could not sway the bulk of voters to find this white who voted for Mr. Trump. And so they were relying upon Mr. Mueller to get rid of Mr. Trump, and he did not, so far, succeed. And then this whole so-called Russiagate scandal also reflects an internecine conflict at the highest level of the U.S. ruling class as to what is the surest way to preserve and protect U.S. hegemony internationally. Hillary Rodham Clinton's approach was to confront Russia first, Donald J. Trump approach, obviously, is to confront China. Uh, Mr. Trump won the electoral argument, at least, in November 2016, uh, but that was not enough for those on the Hillary Rodham Clinton side, uh, many of whom have made a comfortable living by whipping up an anti-Moscow psychosis. In any case, uh, this is a very dangerous moment, uh, not least because, as you well know, if you go after the king and you don't get rid of the king, the king is going to be coming after you. And now there is wind in the sails of Mr. Trump's ship of state insofar as white nationalism is growing apace as acknowledged and recognized by the murderous terroristic attack in New Zealand, where the perpetrator gave a shout out explicitly to Mr. Trump. So it seems to me that's where we are in 2019. I guess this hoax has also had other major global implications further damaging the United States relationship with Russia, the world's other major nuclear power. And even this week, there's this bellicosity because Russia is an ally of Venezuela with investments in Venezuela, just as China has major investments there, where the U.S. is attempting to topple the elected Maduro government. Well, yes, and it's quite striking (laughs) that Mr. Trump issued these thinly veiled threats to Moscow to stop and cease its support for the Maduro regime in Caracas. Uh, This took place at a press conference informally held in Washington with the spouse of the self-proclaimed interim president, Mr. Guaido. But it seems that as of now, U.S. imperialism is checkmated in Venezuela Because even though Mr. Trump keeps reiterating and repeating that all options are on the table, there doesn't seem to be that much of an appetite for direct U.S. military intervention in Venezuela as of today. And it seems that only a military intervention as of today would topple Mr. Maduro. 
Now, of the, I think, 55 countries that lined up to support the U.S. in this attempted coup are members of NATO, short for the North American Treaty Organization. And next week, NATO foreign ministers are meeting here in D.C. to mark the 70th anniversary of the military alliance, which began with an announced mission of being a defensive alliance of Western Europe but has grown to be a very destabilizing and deadly force, most recently in places like Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, and Libya. So I'm sure you know the anti-war and peace activists are mobilizing for at least two demonstrations on Saturday, March 30th, and also on April 4th, you know, while this NATO anniversary is being celebrated on the date that the Reverend Martin Luther King was assassinated. So we've talked about NATO a lot. So What are your thoughts on this anniversary of NATO being marked here? And I think NATO's head of NATO is actually going to speak before Congress. It's really scandalous that this uh, offensive alliance uh, born in 1949 at the height of the Cold War, which sought to block the liberation of Southern Africa, a stalwart ally of minority rule in Rhodesia and apartheid South Africa, has the gall to meet in Washington, D.C., which is the home of so many people of African descent. Uh, You mentioned its ill-fated, ill-advised intervention in Libya in 2011, uh, which not only has created a human rights catastrophe in North Africa, uh, but has opened the door to so many Africans drowning in the seas of the Mediterranean as they're fleeing instability. It's quite appropriate in a sense, in a narrow sense, that they're meeting uh, in Washington, given the fact that they're close out by the Pentagon. That building, as you know, was built on the ruins of a black neighborhood in Northern Virginia, known as Queen City. And that in some ways is complementing the disastrous destruction of Libya in 2011. Of course, NATO has been creeping ever closer to the doorstep of Moscow, which has led to instability in both Georgia and the Crimea. And yet, the democratic leadership has the gall to invite the leadership of NATO to Capitol Hill is an insult and an outrage, and I hope that the throngs of protesters are joined by many, many more. Well, I think that um, before we end today, I think that you had other news out of Europe. Well, it's rather remarkable that President Xi Jinping was in Italy and France this past week. And it reflects the rise of China, which is due in no small measure to the fact that NATO and U.S. imperialism had this uh, anti-Moscow obsession that led to a deal with China in the early 1970s that led to massive foreign direct investment in China, which has created this unstoppable economic juggernaut. Italy has broken ranks with its G7 allies and has signed on to China's multi-billion dollar, perhaps multi-trillion dollar Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which to reduce it to its basics uh, certainly suggests that all roads will be leading to China in the 21st century. Uh, Mr. Xi also went to France where he got a chillier reception. But the problem for the European Union is that The EU is not united with the United States on the question of China, at least not objectively. Both are opposed to the rise of China. But as you know, the Trump team 
is similarly hostile to the EU and particularly Germany, which makes unity around China ever more difficult. Not only that, but China has established deep roots in Eastern Europe, and that also means that the EU will not be united with regard to China. So if I were a stock picker, uh, I would tell investors in your audience to buy China. Well, we'll have to take that under advisement. (laughs) We'll have to keep a watch on what's happening with Italy and France and China. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, as always, for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. On Capitol Hill, issues of the environment took center stage with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York firing back at Republican attempts to scuttle her Green New Deal to combat climate change. In a video that has been viewed online millions of times, the freshman lawmaker spoke out after Representative Sean Duffy, Republican of Wisconsin, called the Green New Deal expensive and elitist. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. You want to tell people that their concern and their desire for clean air and clean water is elitist? Tell that to the kids in the South Bronx, which are suffering from the highest rates of childhood asthma in the country. Tell that to the families in Flint, whose kids... Their blood is ascending in in lead levels. Their brains are damaged for the rest of their lives. Call them elitist. You're telling them that those kids are trying to get on a plane to Davos? People are dying. They are dying. And the response across the other side of the aisle is to introduce an amendment five minutes before a hearing and a markup. This is serious. This should not be a partisan issue. This is about our constituents and all of our lives. Iowa, Nebraska, broad swaths swaths of the Midwest are drowning right now underwater. Farms, towns that will never be recovered and never come back. And we're here and and people are more concerned about helping oil companies than helping their own families? I don't think so. I don't think so. This is about our lives. This is about American lives. And it should not be partisan. Science should not be partisan. We are facing a national crisis. And if we do not ascend to that crisis, if we do not ascend to the the levels in which we were threatened at the Great Depression, when we were threatened in World War II, if we do not ascend to those levels, if we tell the American public that we are more willing to invest and bail out big banks than we are willing to invest in our farmers and our urban families, then I don't know what we're here doing. I don't know what we're here doing. There were also verbal clashes and some theater in the Senate at the Thursday hearings for David Bernhardt who is expected to be confirmed to head the Department of Interior. Bernhardt, who is currently acting secretary, is a former energy industry lawyer and lobbyist who has carried out the Trump agenda of targeting national monument lands for oil drilling and mining. He also blocked release of a report on three pesticides that can kill hundreds of already endangered bird, fish, and plant species. As Bernhardt faced questioners, 
A spectator behind him put on a rubber swamp monster mask and was caught on camera and video for much of the hearing. In D.C., the Black Alliance for Peace and other organizations are mobilizing on Thursday, April 4th to rally against the NATO 70th anniversary meeting and the glorification of militarism on the same day that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. They are gathering 8 a.m. at the Einstein Memorial on Constitution Avenue near 21st Street Northwest, and from there people will march to the NATO meeting, the location of which is currently being withheld from the public. And finally, in culture and media, the National Black Memorabilia Fine Art and Craft Show is Saturday and Sunday, April 6th and 7th, focusing on 400 years of African-American history and culture since enslaved Africans arrived in Virginia in 1619. Exhibits include slavery artifacts, Marcus Garvey, the Black Panther Party, Frederick Douglass, the Tuskegee Airmen, and more. At the Montgomery County Fairgrounds, 501 Perry Parkway in Gaithersburg, Maryland. For more information, call 301-649-1915 or visit johnsonshows.com. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, Professor Walter Hickson speaking at the Israel Lobby and American Policy Conference held March 22nd at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Stay with us. You dropped the bomb on me, baby. You dropped the bomb on me. But you turned me on, You dropped the bomb on me. Russia. Russia, Vladimir Putin, Russia, 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 Russia hates Russia, 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 Putin, Russia, 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 Russian, 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 Russia, Russia, Moscow, Moscow, Russia, Russian, pro Russian, Russian, Russia, Russian, 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 Russians, Russian, 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 Moscow, Russian, Russian, Russia, Putin, Russian, 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 Russian against us, Russians, Russians, Russia against the US, the Russians, Russian, 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 Russian government scheme, the Russians, Vladimir Putin, Russia, Vladimir Putin, Russia, Putin, Putin and Russia, Russia, Scott, Russia, Russian, Russian, Russia, the Russians, Russian, Russians, Russia, Russia, Russian, Russian, Russia, Russia, Putin, 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 Russian, 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 Russia, the Soviet Empire, Russia, Russia, Russia. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. Is that from one show? One show. That's from one show. Oh, you know, if you play it backwards, it's the same book. have the honor of introducing Professor Walter Hickson, who's the author of a half dozen books about foreign policy. Uh, he's taught history for 36 years and is currently the distinguished professor of history at the University of Akron. Uh, professor Hickson's books include American Foreign Relations, A New Diplomatic History, American Settler Colonialism, a History, The Myth of American Diplomacy, National Identity, and U.S. Foreign Policy, Parting the Curtain, Propaganda, Culture in the Cold War, and George F. Kennan, Cold War Iconoclast. Most exciting to us is Walter Hickson's new book, Israel's Armor, The Role of the Israel Lobby, 
in the history of the Palestine conflict. Uh, he provided a copy to conference organizers early on, and we were simply astounded by his uh, new sources of information that he has tapped. Please help me welcome Professor Walter Hickson. Thank you, Grant. Thank you to Delinda, Janet, Dale, and uh, all the uh, folks with Washington Report and with the Institute. It's a great honor for me to be here. And um, I'd also like to uh, thank all of you who are uh, activists in this cause or interested in this cause, whether participants here, organizers, people uh, watching on television, watching online. Uh, I'd also like to especially thank Eyewitness Palestine. They have a table here. I went on a um, three-week trip, which was um, indispensable and pivotal in my intellectual development on this subject and helped me set up a trip. Uh, I went on to Lebanon, and I recommend that to anyone, especially you students here, uh, who might be uh, interested. Uh, normally, I don't like to uh, read a talk, but in the interest of time efficiency, and uh, it also is very helpful when you're dealing with Israel in the lobby to say exactly what you mean. So uh, I, will, um, I will read this uh, talk. This conference speaks truth to power. We gather here because we support truth and justice in Palestine. We also insist on a free and open discussion of the Israel lobby and its impact on American democracy as well as world politics. All of you already know that the Israel lobby is extremely powerful. For the record, it constitutes easily the most powerful diaspora lobby representing the interests of a foreign nation in all of American history. But you may not know how deeply rooted it is. In fact, the extensive lobbying efforts of Zionists and their Jewish and Christian sympathizers in the United States, and there's not enough work on the, on the Israel lobby by scholars for reasons that may be obvious. Uh, this book is good, but doesn't go back to the, the deeper roots of the conflict, um, as I'm able to, uh, to do in this book on the first generation. I'll talk about it, but then I'll talk about uh, a, a subsequent project I've, uh, I've undertaken. So their influence of the lobby flourished throughout the first generation of the Palestine conflict, which is what the book is about. As good a date as any to fix the origins of the Israel lobby in the United States is the 1942 Biltmore Conference, held in the heartland of American Zionism, New York City. Zionists quickly discovered that they could mobilize Jewish organizations as well as groups such as the American Christian Palestine Committee. It's also important to point out that there was a considerable dissension among Jewish Americans, including the American Council on Judaism, which utterly opposed Zionism and utterly opposed their religion being hijacked for the cause of creating a, a so-called Jewish commonwealth. So it's certainly a mistake to assume that Jewishness equals Zionism and always has been. So the Biltmore Conference, after that, Zionists quickly discovered that they could mobilize these organizations. The nascent lobby efficiently lined up the two main political parties in support of the creation of a Jewish commonwealth. Admission of masses of refugees and crucial U.S. financial assistance to accommodate them. Military assistance would come later. 
A well-organized and effective Zionist lobby thus predated the creation of Israel. It was poised to ensure that Israel would receive the diplomatic, political, and military support that would enable it to undertake decades of aggressive expansion in direct violation of myriad UN resolutions, principles of human rights, and international law. From the beginning, the purpose of the lobby was to insulate the Zionist state from widespread criticism, to deflect and distort the truth about its aggression so that it could reap the benefits of the security and massive financial assistance from the most powerful country in the world. Louis Lipsky, an American Zionist from Rochester, declared that propaganda and persuasion would provide, quote, the armor that Israel cannot live without. The key figure in the first generation of the lobby, however, was a little-known Zionist from Cleveland, Isaiah Leo Kinnan. Working hand-in-hand -hand with the famous Israeli diplomat, Abba Iban, Kinnan became the workhorse of the Israel lobby. His personal papers, available at the Center for Jewish History in New York, yet largely neglected by scholars, reveal the early history of the lobby. Those and myriad other papers, along with State Department records and an abundant secondary literature, provided the research foundation for the book that I have done. The Palestinians and the Arab world had no comparable lobby in the United States, which had the largest Jewish population in the world, and millions of modernist and fundamentalist Protestants as well. They were ready to line up behind the Jewish refugees in Palestine and the Zionist agenda. Full awareness of the horrors of the Nazi genocide, combined with ignorance of the impact of Zionist aggression in Palestine, underlay U.S. public support. Buoyed by the growing U.S. support, Israel expanded its borders, rejected international mediation, and turned a blind eye to the plight of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees. When the UN mediator, Count Folk Bernadotte of Sweden, pressured Israel to compromise a terrorist troika that included future Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir, had him gunned down in his jeep at a Jerusalem roadblock in September 1948. By that time, with a presidential election looming in November, the lobby exercised a powerful influence over the Truman administration. Zionists worked through David Niles, a White House advisor on Jewish affairs, which became an essential post in future presidential administrations. They all had a specifically Jewish affairs or Zionist lobby advisor. Israeli patriarch Chaim Weizmann assiduously cultivated Truman, with the help of the president's former business partner, Eddie Jacobson, a Zionist from Kansas City. Fully aware and frequently resentful of the pressure exerted on him by the Israel lobby, Truman nonetheless ultimately sided with it and against the advice of the State Department. The United States became the first nation to recognize Israel, supported a massive influx of Jewish migrants, and glossed the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. President Eisenhower and Secretary of State John Foster Dulles presented a greater challenge for Israel and the lobby than had Truman. The Republican administration entered office in 1953, determined to rein in Israel and forge a Middle East peace that would protect oil supplies, allow Arab moderates to fend off extremists, 
and support the overarching foreign policy of containment of communism. Israel appeared vulnerable when Ariel Sharon manifested a lifelong zeal for indiscriminate slaughter of vulnerable Arab people as he orchestrated a massacre at the West Bank village of Kibyah in October 1953. Deeply alarmed by the impact of the massacre might have on American public opinion, Kennan mobilized the local councils to calm the waters in the wake of the indiscriminate killing of innocent villagers in their homes. Kennan soon realized that the political power of the lobby already was so well ensconced that representatives and senators of both parties could be counted on to line up behind Israel in a crisis. This was an important moment as Kibyeh showed that Israel could massacre people and rely on the lobby to effectively manage the political fallout. Israel thus could continue to lash out violently across its already expanded borders, regularly carrying out assaults disproportionate to any provocation in Jordan, Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon. In 1957, Eisenhower did force Israel to pull back after it had invaded Egypt. But even then, Israeli aggression was rewarded with critical new navigation rights that would enable it to precipitate the pivotal 1967 war. In the period between Suez and the 1967 war, John F. Kennedy won election backed by overwhelming Jewish political support. In 1962, JFK pronounced the existence of the special relationship and opened the military supply spigot by selling Israel Hawk surface-to-air defensive missiles. The Israelis showed their appreciation to Kennedy by repeatedly lying to him about the nuclear research program in the desert at Dimona. They pledged not to introduce nuclear weapons to the Middle East, when in fact they were committed to doing precisely that. Israel refused to sign the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Iran, by contrast, like the overwhelming majority of nations in the world, Iran, of course, is a signatory. By the Kennedy years, the lobby had reorganized several times and established its structural component, AIPAC, you've heard of that, backed by influential supporters in both political parties. Kennan regularly stuffed congressional mailboxes with copies of the Near East Report, the well-edited and highly successful propaganda newsletter that he created. Inside the White House, the Jewish Affairs Advisor Meyer Mike Feldman undermined efforts to rein in Israel. The lobby ensured that the State Department and the few members of Congress who asked troublesome questions, notably Senator J. William Fulbright, were kept at bay. The lobby then targeted and in 1974 helped defeat Fulbright and drive him out of the Senate. Noting that the Kennedy administration was virtually powerless against Israel in the lobby, advisor Robert Comer, himself Jewish, asked in frustration, what kind of relationship was this? To Comer and the State Department diplomats, it was obvious that Israel and the lobby were the tail that wagged the strategic dog of American Middle East policy. In his blurb for my book, John Mearsheimer wrote that it is, quote, especially good at showing how a select group of pro-Israel Americans profoundly influenced President Lyndon Johnson, who was like putty in their hands. 
Johnson had been pro-Israel since his youth when his Aunt Jessie infused him with the biblical lore that God had chosen the Jews to inherit the Holy Land. Johnson also enjoyed the company of close Jewish friends and advisors, Epi Evron, Abe Fortas, Arthur Goldberg, Arthur and Matilda Krim, among others. Johnson apparently did not directly greenlight Israel's initiation of the June 1967 war, but neither did he flash a red signal. As several Israeli leaders subsequently openly acknowledged, Israel in 1967, as in 1956, launched the June War as a first rather than a last resort. The Israelis, as well as the CIA, knew that Israel was the more powerful force, could defeat all the Arab rivals combined, and that is precisely what Israel did, initiating a blitzkrieg attack rather than seeking a negotiated settlement of maritime and territorial disputes. After the war, which included the apparently deliberate attempt to sink an American spy ship, the USS Liberty, killing 34 and wounding 171 U.S. sailors, Johnson reversed a generation of U.S. policy upholding the 1949 borders. He acquiesced to the lobby in support of an occupation of Arab territories that extended in myriad directions far beyond the 1949 armistice lines. The lobby thus enabled Israel to exploit the sweeping military triumph by embarking on a messianic quest for the greater Israel. My study culminates with the pivotal decisions in 1967, initiating an illegal occupation and the emergence of a violently regressive apartheid state. Before most Americans even knew that it existed, the lobby had played a pivotal role in enabling Israel to launch an aggressive war, to choose land over peace with the Palestinians and its other Arab neighbors, and to continue to thumb its nose at the UN and international law. The United States not only enabled the illegal occupation, it bolstered the IDF with advanced weaponry, including tanks and F-4 Phantom jets, Skyhawks as well, despite Israel's contempt for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. By 1967, Israel and the lobby had achieved a stranglehold over modern American political life. Quote, the U.S. position is all that can be desired, Kennan declared after the Six-Day War. The U.S. is working like never before. You are listening to Professor Walter Hickson speaking at the Israel Lobby and American Policy Conference held March 22nd at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. Now, back to Professor Hickson. Lobby achieved its success by circumventing the foreign policy bureaucracy and applying pressure directly on the president, 
and the Congress through campaigns to secure financial assistance, armaments, and unstinting diplomatic support for Israel. By the 1970s, the lobby and Kennan himself began to be identified and chronicled by the press. Asked in 1973 to explain the operations of the lobby, Kennan responded, I put it very succinctly in one sentence. We appeal to local leadership to write or telegraph or telephone their congressmen and urge them to call upon the president to overrule the Department of State. And this has been going on now for some 20 years, unquote. At the time of the interview, the Near East report had achieved a circulation of nearly 30,000. As Kennan suggested, and as my book shows, throughout the first generation of its existence, from Truman through the Johnson years, the lobby successfully fended off persistent State Department efforts to forge a, quote, impartial or balanced diplomacy between Israel and the Arabs. While Israel carried out cross-border attacks, stonewalled refugees, and rejected diplomacy, the lobby successfully undermined the advice of area experts, some of whose children organize the magazine and sponsor this conference, undermined the advice of area experts who warned that the imbalanced pro-Israeli policy would perpetuate instability and achieve security for no one, including Israel. American professional diplomats, often wrongly dismissed as pro-Arab or even anti-Semitic, neither of which was true, warned about the consequences, including the rise of extremism in the Arab world. Their prophecy would come full circle in the 21st century. I now turn to a broader interpretive study I have undertaken on a history of U.S.-Israeli special relationship, going beyond where this book ended up. When I began intensive study of Israel-Palestine several years ago, I was susceptible to the familiar stereotypes, age-old religious conflict, ancient enmities, neither side willing to compromise. Now that I know better, I am, of course, charged with being one-sided. So let me say this, Palestinians and Arabs are human and have made many mistakes, to be sure. The historical record clearly shows, however, that the Palestine conflict is rooted in Zionist aggression. Accelerating settler colonization has both caused and perpetuated the conflict and, moreover, has foreclosed genuine opportunities for a peace settlement. In 1949, even more clearly in 1967 and in the 1990s as well. In everyday life, we learn and teach our children that it is inappropriate to blame the victim. The same is true in diplomatic history. No one blames Poland for being invaded in 1939. Accordingly, the focus of what follows is where it belongs, squarely on the aggressors and their apologists. Today, Israel and its American backers have become increasingly transparent in their regressive policies, claiming Jerusalem as the eternal capital, savagely cutting off Gaza, as well as aid to the Palestinian refugees, engaging in targeted killings and collective punishment, and now yesterday the United States signed off on another illegitimate land grab, the annexation of the Golan Heights. All of these actions are in direct violation of international law. We may not be able to stop these actions at this moment in time, but what we can do as scholars and activists 
is to call to account Israel in the United States. Specifically, we must gain a clearer understanding of Israel's core identity and the ways in which the lobby attempts to cover up Israel's crimes. Application of the framework of settler colonialism to explain Israeli history has been a step in the right direction. But what does this label really mean? Here's a brief overview. Animated by nationalist and religious discourses, settler states such as Israel, the United States, Australia, and South Africa, among others, are congenitally aggressive. They strive to cleanse the land of its indigenous residents in the name of providential destiny, modernity, and racial hierarchy. Settler colonial states work relentlessly to establish facts on the ground. They embrace violent solutions, including regular resort to massacre. They reject legal restraint, and they abhor external authority. The drive to lay claim to the biblical holy land meant that Israel would not agree to a negotiated settlement of the Palestine conflict. The peace process became a sham, providing cover for the establishment of ever more facts on the ground. Fueled by aggressive instincts and mythical destiny, Israel became a reactionary and rogue state, building illegal settlements in contempt of the UN, repressing Palestinians in contempt of human rights. Knowing that the lobby had its back, Israel ignored the State Department and rebuffed American presidents, thereby affirming Moshe Dayan's famous quip, our American friends offer us money, arms, and advice. We take the money, we take the arms, we decline the advice. The Israeli patriarch Ben-Gurion liked to say, it's not important what the Gentiles say, what matters is what the Jews do. The Israeli political system has empowered a series of bigoted, bellicose leaders who showed utter contempt for Arabs and a determination violently to dispossess them. The early Zionist leaders bore the psychic scars and traumas of the bloodlands of East Central Europe from which they came. They carried the terrible burden of the Nazi genocide that took the lives of their family members and some six million Jews. As a result, they were quick to brand Arab leaders like Nasser as the next Hitler. Diplomacy became a reprise of Munich. Any effort at compromise was dismissed as appeasement. This time, they vowed the Jews would be the aggressors. The Israeli leaders thus inherited, internalized, and perpetuated an intolerant Hobbesian worldview that was inimical to peacemaking. For most of its existence, Israel has been led by men who should be held accountable for war crimes. I do not make such an accusation lightly. Abundant evidence exists under international law to make the case against, at a minimum, Ben-Gurion, Diane, Begin, Sharon, Shamir, and Netanyahu. They must be held to account in the dock of history, if nowhere else. Millions of decent, caring people live in Israel. 
Some of them bear a heavy burden of regret and frustration over their country's actions, as do many of us with respect to American policies, both at home and abroad. The crucial point, however, is that neither peace-minded Israeli citizens nor liberal American Jews have thus far been able to break through the iron wall of Israel's militant chauvinism or to unhinge the right-wing vice grip on political power. The conclusion seems inescapable. The militant and messianic settler state selects like-minded leaders. I think it is essential to come to grips with the militant core of Israeli identity in order to understand the role of the lobby. The lobby provides cover for Israel's congenital aggression, its pursuit of land over peace, its flaunting of international law. While Israel carries out violent and criminal acts, the lobby functions to insulate it from criticism, to distort history and reality, in sum, to provide what Lipsky described, the armor Israel cannot live without. Such is the hubris of imperial settler states like Israel and the United States, that even as they engage in violent repression, they simultaneously insist on being loved, honored, and accredited as model democracies. Historical denial and policing of dissent are thus among the primary characteristics of the militant settler state. Efforts to unpack Israeli, or for that matter, American mythology, and to expose the aggression that inheres within are invariably attacked as subversive. For Israel, like the Soviet Union of old, glasnost could become a deadly virus. For these reasons, Israel and the lobby smear and condemn their critics unmercifully. Which brings us to the recent remarkable, deeply disturbing, and yet highly revealing case of Representative Ilhan Omar. Representative Omar may have been guilty of hitting the send button on some loosely worded tweets, clearly as rare and heinous a crime as there is in America today. <laughs> Israel's apologists attacked Representative Omar for linking Benjamins with the Israel lobby, that is, for having the temerity to suggest that a political lobby in a capitalist society might raise and use money <laughs> in an effort to shape public opinion and the resultant national security policy. This, of course, is precisely what Israel lobby does do. Nonetheless, Representative Omar apologized for the tweet, showing a degree of stateswomanship that you may never see nor hear from the Israel lobby. Think about all of the people that Camera and other Zionist attack groups have smeared over the years. Have you ever known them to apologize? Israel's vocal partisans in Congress, backed by the lobby, stepped up the Orwellian assault on Representative Omar when she stated another rather obvious truth, namely that the lobby demands political allegiance to the state of Israel. So we have a situation in which a lobby was created for the express purpose of promoting uncritical bipartisan support for Israel. Yet when a member of Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee at that dares to point this out, she is viciously attacked and inundated with death threats. Derrida and Foucault would be no doubt gratified that the Israel lobby has mastered the concept of tropes, as well as the ability to use them to manipulate 
an all-too-easily-confused, internet-addled mass society. Tropes, as the French theorists taught us, are deployed for the purpose of exercising power. While Representative Omar herself never used the term dual loyalty, her critics unleashed this particular trope as if she had. She was then promptly saddled with the scarlet letter of anti-Semitism. Unreflective journalists, including the so-called liberal news media, jumped on the bandwagon, affirming and spreading the word to the point that a canard effectively became the truth, namely that Omar had trafficked in anti-Semitic discourse. What she had done, in actuality, was attempt to criticize Israel and illuminate the role of the lobby. These are the reasons that she had to be smeared and silenced. Smears and distortion undermine free speech and dissent in a supposedly democratic society, but even worse in this case, they cheapen and detract from the chilling reality of actual anti-Semitism, the hate-filled stereotypes and violent attacks such as Charlottesville and especially the massacre at the Pittsburgh synagogue in October of last year. Let's consider another trope, Islamic terrorism. In the United States, in Israel, and other countries, you are free to use this trope at will. It is perfectly acceptable to link the world's second largest religious tradition with millions of adherents in scores of countries all over the globe with terrorism. If you say Islamic terrorism, there will be no lobby, no trope police to step in with smears and vilification. You are free to inspire people to take action, like the mass murders last week in the New Zealand mosque. If you apply axis of evil or evildoers to Islamic countries, that is well and good. However, if you are a non-white Islamic congresswoman who wears a headscarf and you condemn as evil Israeli war crimes, killing innocent civilians in the Gaza Strip, you are an anti-Semite. The smearing of Omar calls to mind the remark Netanyahu once made, unaware that he was being recorded, about how easy it was to manipulate discourse and to move public opinion in the United States. It also lays bare the cynical tactics of the Israel lobby. From Kibyah to the killing fields of Gaza, Israel and the lobby have discovered that a tenacious and relentless propaganda campaign can cover up almost any crime justify almost any calumny, overcome almost any political challenge. Israel and the lobby have learned to mobilize fast, to attack without restraint, to eliminate perceived threats, and ultimately to turn them to their own advantage. Israeli propaganda thus mirrors Israeli military power. Both deploy campaigns of shock and awe, allowing the bodies to fall where they may, ever willing to make truth the first casualty. As I bring this talk to a close, bear with me while I engage in a final bit of historical reflection. We live in dangerous times. The distortions and deep divisions within this country sometimes remind me of the antebellum years in American history. Ominously, it was a time when the political system collapsed. In the year 1858, the nation confronted irreconcilable national divisions as a result of its long embrace of crimes against humanity. At that moment, a little-known former one-term congressman from the Midwest seized the national spotlight by declaring, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A nation, he declaimed, could not endure 
permanently half slave and half free. It was true of the United States in 1858, and it is true of Israel-Palestine today. Something, somewhere, somehow, sometime is going to have to give. In 1861, Abraham Lincoln went on to become president. He famously wore a top hat, which reposes in the Smithsonian just a few blocks from where I stand today. Encircling Lincoln's top hat is a black silk mourning band through which he honored the memory of his son, Willie, who died prematurely at age 11. I think back to Lincoln and his top hat, and then to the president we have today, a flag-hugging, certifiable, narcissist demagogue who sports a red MAGA ball cap. The juxtaposition of Lincoln and Trump reminds me of the famous quotation from The Education of Henry Adams. The acerbic historian and scion of the vintage American political family wrote, the progress of evolution from President Washington to President Grant was alone enough to upset Darwin. <laughs> I hate to think what Henry Adams might say today. <laughs> Amid the horrific civil war over which he agonized on a daily basis, Lincoln repeatedly demonstrating an astonishing ability to say so much in so few words, including the breathtaking poignancy of his remarks at Gettysburg in November 1863. Months later, in April 1864, Lincoln revealed the epic purity of his prose in a letter to a Kentucky newspaper editor when he declared, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Let me conclude in the same spirit. Let us declare here today that if demanding the right to exist while denying it to your neighbor is not wrong, nothing is wrong. If driving people from their land and demolishing their homes is not wrong, nothing is wrong. If asserting absolute authority over a historic city, rightful home to people of all faiths is not wrong, nothing is wrong. If slaughtering children for throwing stones at their oppressors is not wrong, nothing is wrong. If terror and deprivation that are being inflicted every day upon the imprisoned people of Gaza is not wrong, Nothing is wrong. If supplying $125 billion to finance a regime that commits such crimes against humanity is not wrong, nothing is wrong. If converting the Congress of the United States into a lapdog for Israeli policies is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Let us also emphasize once again that if anti-Semitism is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Cynical deployment of baseless charges of anti-Semitism, however, in order to legislate against free speech, stifle criticism of a foreign nation, or insist on the right to boycott an apartheid state, if these things are not wrong, nothing is wrong. As we continue to struggle, no matter what the odds and the monies arrayed against us, let us derive inspiration from another antebellum freedom fighter. I am earnest, William Lloyd Garrison declared in 1831 when he launched publication of the first issue of the anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator. I will not equivocate, I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard. Thank you. You 
have been listening to Walter Hickson, author of the forthcoming book, Israel's Armor, The Role of the Israel Lobby in the History of the Palestine Conflict, speaking at the Israel Lobby and American Policy Conference held March 22nd at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, the conference of top thinkers, activists, authors, and experts who are denied corporate media platforms in the U.S., was held just two days before the controversial American-Israel Public Affairs Committee held its annual policy conference at the Washington Convention Center. And that will do it for today's show. Thanks to our contributor, Professor Gerald Horn. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can support On The Ground on Patreon. The music we played this hour included You Dropped a Bomb on Me by The Gap Band and then that same song mixed with a YouTube mix-up by Maya of sounds from the Rachel Maddow show as played by The Jimmy Dore Show. And then also Musicawi Silt by the Ether Orchestra or Either Orchestra from the 2005 album Ethiopic, Volume 20 Live in Addis. One last shout-out for the No to NATO rallies happening March 30th, 1 p.m. at Lafayette Park in front of the White House and on April 4th on the day that the Reverend Martin Luther King was assassinated, meeting at 8 a.m. at the Einstein Memorial on Constitution Avenue near 21st Street in Northwest D.C. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.